Yeah, and we have a number of states with really big budget surpluses. This is the kind of thing that gets people's attention. If they think they can really move the needle just a little bit, they're more likely to do it. And and if they know someone who is has got ALS, it, it helps. It personalizes it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. According to multiple studies published over the years, people who served in the military are more likely to develop ALS than people with no history of military service. Because of that, ALS was deemed a service-connected disease in 2008. Research into the connection between military service and ALS grew out of studies of veterans of the Persian Gulf War in 1990 and 1991. In a September 2003 issue of Neurology, researchers published a study on the medical records of 2.5 million personnel who served in the Persian Gulf War and found that those who served in that war were nearly twice as likely to develop ALS than those who did not serve in the Gulf. The risk was higher among those who served in the Army and Air Force. A second study in the same issue found similar results on the increased risk of ALS among Gulf War veterans. And since that study looked at Gulf War veterans who were younger than 45, the researchers concluded that the incidence rate among Gulf War veterans could increase as they get older. Subsequent studies extended the population to include people who served in the military during previous wars and those who served during peacetime, leading to the finding that, regardless of when or where someone served, military veterans are at a higher risk of developing ALS. But why? Here, researchers have as many questions as they have answers. According to a study of the connection between ALS and the military commissioned by the ALS Association, some evidence suggests that veterans with known exposure to certain toxic elements, like burning agents used in warfare, are at an increased risk. Exposure to CTE and traumatic brain injury have also been studied as potential explanation. So, as we honor our country's veterans this Veterans Day, it's a good moment to reflect on the connection between military service and ALS. This from the conclusion of the ALS and Military Service White Paper referenced earlier. Since 2001, ALS has taken the lives of more veterans than the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Although many questions remain unanswered, scientific evidence strongly demonstrates that military service increases a person's risk of ALS. Additional studies are needed to find factors that may be influencing this risk and to investigate how these factors can be translated into preventative and or treatment strategies. As we work to address the risk of ALS in military veterans, we must bear in mind that resources also are needed to care for and serve those living with the disease today, to help improve quality of life, to provide access to necessary medical care, and to assist people with ALS in meeting the day-to-day challenges the disease has imposed on their lives. And we will share a link to that full report in this episode's show notes. My guest this week is Gerald McCormick. Gerald is a Gulf War veteran and former majority leader in the Tennessee General Assembly, and he is currently a consultant for the Ingram Group. Earlier this year, he was diagnosed with ALS. Gerald, thanks so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. Well, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Why don't we get started with just introducing yourself to listeners and letting us know about your connection to ALS. Yeah, well, Gerald McCormick, live in Nashville, Tennessee, um, uh, formerly w- was in the state legislature here, and was, was the House Majority Leader 
uh, for six years, uh, retired from the legislature uh, in 2018. In, uh, I guess it was 2021, sort of early in the year, I developed a limp in my right leg and eventually went and had it checked out and then checked out again and checked out again over and over again. As often happens with ALS, they have to um, uh, decide it's not everything else before they get all the way to ALS. So went in for the, um, I think they call it an EMG, where they do the, the they stick needles all in you and check your uh, nerve reactions and that kind of thing. And finally, they came to the conclusion that it was ALS. And I think that was in February of this year. So it's been a little less than a year since we've gotten the uh, diagnosis. Prior to being in the legislature in Tennessee, you served in the first Gulf War. Yeah. Uh, you're a military veteran. We're, we're bringing this conversation to listeners on Veterans Day. So happy Veterans Day and thank you for your service. But uh-huh. when were you when were you made aware that of the connection that, that ALS was a service-related disease and mm-hmm. that, that veterans have a higher likelihood of being diagnosed with ALS? Well, you know, I think I've read over the years that, that Gulf War veterans were more likely to, to have a number of different problems. And uh, I'm, I'm like everyone else, you know, that's something that happens to other people and, and not to me or my family. But uh, of course, after I got the diagnosis, I looked into it and, and I want to say it was somewhere around, you know, four or five times more likely uh, that you get ALS if you had served uh, in the Middle East, particularly in the first Gulf War in the military. Uh, there were the burn pits. Uh, there were in environmental issues with, uh, I think, Saddam Hussein burned a lot of oil wells on his way north. And so there were environmental hazards that they think had something to do with it. Now, that's over 30 years ago. You know, maybe it was something else, but the military and the Veterans Administration automatically assumes they get called a presumption, and they presume that that was the cause of it. And um, whether it was or not, I don't know. Never had any family history, though. So there, I think there's a good chance that that's what it was. And we'll, we'll share a link in the show notes to uh, the, the report that the ALS Association put together mm-hmm. on that higher likelihood uh, and, the, and the connection between military service and ALS. So you diagnosed in February. How did you respond? Like, what you know, just how have you engaged, I guess, in the fight against ALS? You know, how, how did your family respond? Talk to me about the last, what the last couple of months have been like. Well, we, of course, we were shocked and, and didn't really believe it. I went to three or four different neurologists and, and uh, finally uh, was convinced by the last one at Vanderbilt. They have a, a pretty extensive program uh, dealing with ALS. And so after we got all over the initial shock, then I started talking to other people who had either had ALS or have it, as you know, you never get rid of it, or have friends or family that have done it. I had a fraternity brother who went through this about 10 years ago. Um, A couple of guys that I went to high school with have been through this. And and so I've talked to their family members and it just hits all different people in different ways. So we decided that we're just going to deal with it. And I had one that was sort of humorous guy in Chattanooga who used to run the newspaper down there had ALS. Uh, I was told that he worked in his wheelchair until really the weekend before he passed away. But when he first got it, people would go to him and say, oh my God, I'm so sorry that you've got ALS. And, you know, this is just tragic. And he would tell them, well, you know, you're going to die too. I just know what I'm going to die of. 
and he kept telling people that and, and getting them to laugh about it, which is a good attitude to take. You can either laugh or, or you can cry, and you're probably going to do a little of both. But uh, it, it is true that we're all mortal. You know, I'm 60 years old. I'm not 30 with a new baby at home. I've had a lot of good experiences and expect to have more. I've already out-survived some of the people that I know who have had it. And I'm still walking and, and still uh, healthy, going to work every day and those kinds of things. So I'm thankful for that and thankful for the chance to, you know, deal with with these issues while I know what's going on. You know, my father died in a car wreck. It was horribly shocking to all of us and unexpected. And we were unprepared. And at least this way, you get a chance to prepare and you hope it's a long preparation period I met a lady not long ago who's had ALS for 15 years and was still walking and talking and everything else. You know, it's not likely to go on that long, but uh, uh, but there's a lot left to, lot left to do and time left to do it. And I'm fortunate that I'm able to uh, still get around and do those things. You mentioned going to work, uh, still going to work every day at work. You work in the public policy arena. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the key ways that the, the fight against ALS or the search for treatments and cures and, and making it a livable disease, a lot of that is in the public policy arena and advocacy. What have you learned about some of the public policy issues or initiatives that are out there that could help, uh, whether it's expanding access to care or funding for research? Yeah, that's a good question. And I remember it was funny or, or coincidental Facebook memories that pop up. And right after I was diagnosed, one popped up and it was on the floor of the House of Representatives in in Tennessee in 2015. We got a visit from a guy named Tim Shaw, who used to be a a linebacker for the Tennessee Titans. And he came in and after I saw the Facebook memory pop up, I recalled it. And he had come in and had just been diagnosed with ALS. And, you know, this is a guy loaded down with muscles and uh, literally an NFL linebacker. And uh, he talked to us about it and about some of the gains that have been made. And I recalled that. So anyway, fast forwarding, he's actually, he's still alive. He doesn't look like an NFL linebacker anymore. He's had, you know, the atrophy in his muscles and everything, but he's still going and still very active in all this. We had a walk the walk that I think is a national event uh, in the four big cities in Tennessee. Uh, I went to the Nashville one. Uh, Tim Shaw was there in his wheelchair, and and he gave a little speech through his voice uh, recognition system. And uh, so he's still uh, providing that. Now, Vanderbilt does have a program for ALS patients. They have a, an ALS clinic. And actually, it's, it, it's again, this Friday, which I'm going to go to it, and they have 10 or 12 different doctors from different areas or physical therapists and people like that. So rather than make appointments all over town and the, take the whole month to do it, you can go in one day and do it. But getting back to the public policy, I do have a point here. Vanderbilt, a few years ago, the Tennessee legislature did a matching gift to Vanderbilt to help with their ALS efforts. Having been the House Majority Leader, And also the last two years I was in the legislature, I was chairman of the budget committee that finalized budgets. Uh, I am in a position to know the people and know the process of of how to get money appropriated through the state. And the state of Tennessee right now is fortunate to have a big budget surplus. 
And uh, certainly I'll be with my old colleagues and explaining to them the importance of the ALS efforts at Vanderbilt. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll have a good chance of getting them to uh, put some money in the pot. It's an important point and one we've touched on periodically here. So often I get stuck in this framework of thinking of advocacy as something that happens in Washington, D.C. with Congress and executive bodies. Yeah, state-based policy is there for the taking too, and it's an important component of advocacy. Yeah, and we have a number of states with really big budget surpluses, and uh, this is the kind of thing that gets people's attention. And uh, if they think they can really move the needle just a little bit, they're more likely to do it. And, and if they know someone who is, has got ALS, it, it helps. It personalizes it. So there's something positive that comes out of this in different ways. And I was telling somebody the other day at the walk, you know, use me while you got me because I was in a pretty good position to be helpful and, and should be for a while and certainly want to do that and, and looking forward to it. And maybe we can get this thing fixed before, you know, my four-year-old granddaughter gets old enough so that she's, she's at risk of this type thing. One of the public policy initiatives that the ALS Association's public policy team is pushing right now is to increase support in Congress for the Justice for ALS Veterans Act. We've talked about that on this program before, but have you had an opportunity to get up to speed on that bill and welcome your thoughts on that? How I think I could be helpful is I've got a number of former colleagues at the state level who are now in Congress. Uh, Dr. Mark Green is my congressman right now. He served in the legislature in Tennessee. Tim Burchett from the 2nd District of Tennessee out of uh, Knoxville. He's a friend and he serves in Congress. And, you know, it, it probably shouldn't work this way, but it does. If they know people who are dealing with this, then they're more likely to pay a little attention to it. And uh, I could be useful in that way. Uh, Bill Haggerty is a U.S. senator who is someone that I worked with in state government before he became a U.S. senator. And, you know, those kinds of relationships, I think I can parlay into hopefully some support uh, at the national level, too, and, and willing to do that however uh, the ALS Association thinks is the best way to do it. I know you guys have uh, federal lobbyists and that kind of thing, and certainly plug me in wherever uh, you think would <laughs> be helpful. Now, be careful what you offer up. <laughs> um, <laughs> Gerald, you, you mentioned getting this thing fixed. Thinking about the fight and thinking about the search for treatments and cures and, and, and making ALS a livable disease, what have you seen that inspires hope that we're on the right track and, and we're moving in the right direction and, and maybe making some progress along the way? That's that's a good question. I may not give you the right answer on this one. Um, I don't think there is a right answer. <laughs> uh, something that has kind of struck me is is how little doctors know about this. It uh, seems like the, the times I've gone in and asked for advice, uh, they're taking notes and asking me questions more than answering my questions, which to me means they, well, I mean, they don't know what causes it. They don't know how to stop it. They're desperately trying to figure it out. Now, I think some of the best minds in the country are working on it. So there's got to be a breakthrough at some point. The discouraging part is, which is really encouraging and discouraging, so few people have it. That it's, it's not like cancer, and it's mostly among older people. There are examples of, of much younger people who have uh, gotten the disease, but it, it's more older people. It's, it's not that many people. So that makes it more difficult to come up with a consensus that we've really got to do a moonshot type thing and try to, try to uh, beat this thing. The one thing, it's odd, the, 
when I say the thing we've got going for us, it's also what's horrible about it. But everyone can uh, sort of imagine how horrible it would be to be paralyzed. And so the horror of the disease might work in our favor as far as uh, getting support to try to figure out how to manage it and, and eradicate it. It's, it's, it's funny and it's not funny at the same time, but oftentimes uh, the more, more horrible it is, the more likely it is that, that you might be able to fix it. And uh, there, there are a lot of ironies in dealing with ALS. Uh, you, you mentioned the the power of the personal, uh, and and you know meeting with lawmakers, appropriators, whoever needs to be met, and hearing personal stories, seeing uh, the progression. It's something that we've heard from lawmakers, from opinion leaders, uh, that you know it's it's very powerful. Uh, so I think you, you touch on something important there, um, Jared. I, I want to be sensitive to your time and respectful of your time. Uh, any closing thoughts about the journey that you're on, uh, the search for treatments and a cure, and 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 kind of w- what's on the horizon. Well, one day we'd like to see cure. Obviously, everyone would, and hopefully, at some point, someone's going to break through and think, "Well, this this is how it happens. Here's how we can stop it." And and they'll be rich and famous, and and I'll be glad for them. I realize that that's probably not going to happen in my lifetime, but if it happens for the next generation, that would that would be wonderful. The other thing is, is there are I call it whistling past the graveyard, but. There are things that it helps a person with, helps you be more appreciative, helps you stop and pay attention to things. Uh, instead of just getting through a work day, you understand the, that there are more important things than just going to work every day, although that's still important. And um, uh, so, so there are blessings that are associated with it. It's not just sit around and be depressed. It's get up every day and go live your life. Uh, we're gonna take some trips and do some things that we probably, you know, we've always put it off and and now we're not going to put it off. We're going to, we're going to do it. I would say one thing that, that really concerns me and I'm very fortunate. Uh, my wife and I have worked very hard all our life and, and we are relatively well off financially. And I talk on the phone for a living and do zoom calls. So I'm fortunate from that standpoint, and I don't have to get out. But someone who works at a at a hardware store or a restaurant and is on their feet all day, and they don't make that much money, and maybe they don't have good health insurance like I do. Uh, the Veterans Administration, the VA, has been wonderful to deal with. I'm a veteran. I get a disability payment from them. They've also are going to do things like retrofit our home. For someone, is I is it's harder to walk, and I can't walk and get around like I used to. They're going to give me money to modify or purchase a vehicle. So there are things, advantages that I have. It's still going to be a miserable process, and I know that. But at least I don't have the added stress of knowing I'm going to be bankrupt in a few months when I can't walk or, or whatever the case may be. And I think we really need to concentrate on helping those that don't have the ability to take care of themselves. My wife also works and has a good job and makes a relatively large amount of money. And uh, we're so fortunate from that standpoint. And uh, I just can't imagine if if I you know work construction for a living and, and how that would affect my family and my ability to take care of my family. So... That's something we need to keep in mind and, and hopefully focus a lot of our efforts on 
helping people who really can't uh, help themselves. I want to thank my guest this week, Gerald McCormick, along with all the veterans out there for their service. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. And while you're at it, rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way for us to connect with more listeners. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Alex Brower. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon. Bye.